Hello, and welcome back to the Film Brain Podcast. And on this episode, we're of course talking about probably the biggest film of the year, if not the decade, Avengers Endgame. But I'm not alone. I've brought my own team of Avengers, if they want to introduce themselves. Hello, I am Jonathan. I run Films and Stuff here on YouTube, and I've been doing this extensive series going over all the my favorite and biggest Marvel films, and I'm here to discuss their big finale. Hi, I'm Brian, uh, formerly known as The Last Angry Geek. Uh, I can be found on YouTube. I host the show Comic Book Issues. Basically, I'm here because they needed three people. I'm Matt, <laughs> formerly Welshy of uh, That Guy with the Glasses and Channel Awesome fame. I'm currently still working on my soul retrospective. It should be finished in another ten years. <laughs> <laughs> Normally at this point I would review a plot synopsis, but since people are so ginger about spoilers... Um... Hey, that's racist. I'm ginger. <laughs> How about we just briefly say some non-spoiler overall thoughts just to give people an idea of what we thought about this movie. So I really like this. I like this a lot more than I did Infinity War. I'll probably expand on why later on the podcast, but I thought this had a lot of character, a lot of humour, a lot of action, enough to cram into several movies it's a tremendous accomplishment quite frankly for me it surpassed infinity war at least in terms of emotional satisfaction infinity war is a rush of a film a roller coaster whereas this one it takes a step back and lets the characters not just you know breathe and react to everything that's happened but reflect and the whole movie is itself a reflection on the last 21 films and we've never seen anything like that anything approaching this level of retrospection that this film comes across and i think this film has a lot to say i can't say what right now in this spoiler free part but i was floored by what this film was able to do, if not having a few nits to pick along the way. It's very enjoyable if uh, Infinity War is the setup, Endgame is the payoff. It's definitely a game changer for the Marvel Universe. You gotta wonder how they're gonna move on from here, what the next level is gonna be like. It also features the uh, Peter Jackson of superhero fights. If you understand what I'm saying there. Oh, yeah. I agree with everything that's been said. It is a phenomenal achievement, what they've done. I can't see this ever being repeated in what they've done and what they've managed to craft and put together. The only thing, and this is going to be controversial, but, you know, I don't have an internet career, so what the hell. I prefer Infinity War. <gasps> this is, I'm not saying this is not good. This is a phenomenal film, and I will be seeing it many times in the cinema before it leaves the cinema. But I preferred Infinity War, and I think part of that is because, it's like Bryce said, Infinity War is the setup and i do always prefer the setup you know empire strikes back is my favorite star wars film it's setting up return of the jedi i still love return of the jedi but i prefer empire strikes back and to me infinity war created a lot of moments this one pays them off and pays homage to a lot of moments and we'll get into everything in that when we actually get into spoilers but i adore infinity war so there's a slight bias in that but yeah i was shaking in my seat during a couple of these scenes i was literally crying during some of these scenes for this movie what an incredible achievement i don't necessarily think endgame is better than infinity war i think they're about equal they complement each other they're two halves of the same story yes they massively complement each other so from this point forward just to make absolutely positively clear we are going to be talking about this movie comprehensively and by that i mean spoilers we are going to be talking about everything if i sound like i'm being slightly patronizing right now it's because everyone seems to be averse to spoilers but that almost seems superfluous because 
it seems from the box office figures like everyone on the planet has gone to see it these days. But just to be clear, if you are for some reason listening to a very lengthy podcast talking about a film that you haven't seen but want to see and don't want to know anything about, please come back after you've seen it. Because from this point forward, we are going to be talking about the movie properly. Also, you're British. You naturally sound a little patronizing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the plot of the movie, and this is the genuine plot of the movie, the film picks up a few days after the apocalyptic events at the end of Infinity War. Captain Marvel, played by Brie Larson, arrives, and the surviving Avengers manage to track down Thanos, but by this point it's already too late. He's used the Infinity Stones to destroy them, so they can't undo what he's done, but they still kill him anyway, or namely Thor. That was a very satisfying moment. We'll bring that up later. I aimed for the head. Yeah. <laughs> he pulled off his Aragorn moment, kind of. <laughs> so the movie then moves to five years later. The world is still in grief, still trying to recover from this cataclysmic event when suddenly Ant-Man, by a fluke of luck, is flung out of the quantum realm and he goes to the Avengers and says, hey, I've got a way of managing to bring everything back. And it involves time travel through the quantum realm and we're going to do a time heist and steal all the Infinity Stones. Time heist. Yes, time heist. And so that's what they do. We should point out that that was all set up in the Ant-Man and Wasp post credit scene. Yes, it was. That was, uh, he got trapped in the uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp post credit scene. That was the mid credit scene, not the very, very end of the movie. But... Right, right. He got shrunk down and then the Pims all got snapped and he was stuck in there. Yeah, it just happened to be happening at the same time. So that is a genuine plot synopsis of the movie. So, uh, going back to Infinity War and people's feelings on it. So my feeling on Infinity War is that I actually wasn't really much of a fan of that movie. I did a long live stream last year talking about it and I know that a lot of people love that movie but it just didn't connect with me and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that you've got a movie with... 30 main characters going on. There's not really enough time to give them any room to really show off at that point. I mean, they do try and divide the characters amongst themselves, but unfortunately, it just ends up being action after action after action, and as Jonathan has done in one of his previous videos, you can do character through action. I think there are instances of that in Infinity War, but it is all of that. Yeah. It wasn't really much of a story for me, and also I knew what the conclusion was going to be. It has to necessarily end on a cliffhanger. It has to necessarily end on failure. And so it became a bit tedious on that front watching it, because I knew that it was all going to be futile in the end, and also it was going to be reversed at some point anyway, so I just couldn't gravitate towards it. I felt like I connected more with a lot of the individual films that gave us more chance to explore the individual worlds, the individual characters, and that's what I liked about this one, is that there is a lot more world-building this time out. There's a lot more focus on the characters, and I remember just how much I missed that in Infinity War. And also, Infinity War feels like, it feels like setup. It feels like the path to get to here, in retrospect. I think that becomes very clear when you're watching Endgame. It's all setup, essentially. What I will say is, in, in Infinity War, which I loved, I've noticed that a lot of the cast character development belonged to the 
cast who got snapped at the end. Yeah. So it seemed like there was no real character development for Captain America or Black Widow or Hulk. And I figured that would all come in part two because I knew very much that this was part one mm. and that they would have their time to develop and have their moments in part two since they were still there. So it seemed like Scarlet Witch and Vision have their moment. You know, uh, Loki has a moment. You know, all the characters who didn't make it kind of had moments where they got to move their characters forward. Yeah. And also in a way, Infinity War was Gamora's movie and then Endgame. I, of all the characters, I think it's almost Nebula's Nebula. Movie, to a degree. Yeah. yeah. It's like she was the MVP of this film. Yeah. Her and Ant-Man, I thought, were like the two most important characters in this movie. At least of these supporting characters that aren't Iron Man or Steve Rogers. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think that it was actually a surprise how much they gave Karen Gillan to do in this film. She's got a really complicated part. I thought for sure Nebula would bite it in this movie. Yeah, I was like shocked at how important Nebula was to this movie. Yeah. And a great performance from Karen Gillan as well because oh, yeah. it's just if you watch the way she acts as past Nebula and current Nebula, she 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 changes the way she moves. Mm-hmm. If you watch her body language and everything, she completely changes the way and the look on her face, I don't know if it's something to do with CG or what, but even though it's the same actress playing the same character, you distinctly see a difference in the character because of the way she's playing it. Mm-hmm. Very good performance. There's also just great performances across the board. This is not an action film for most of the movie. Right. It's a character drama for a lot of it. It is, and it knows how much we, the audience, are invested in those characters. And yeah, there's little bursts of action, but rarely would they classify as spectacle. And it really lets that character drama carry the film, and it trusts in those actors, and it trusts in those characters. And like in the first, or like bridge from Act 1 to Act 2, the main drama is less, are we going to pull off this time travel, but more like, you know, with like Tony Stark, does he actually want to do it? It's like it's moving on versus confronting the past. And I love the fact that they didn't take the easy way out and just go, right, the last five years didn't happen. Yes, right. He did not do that. In every end of the world time travel story, it's all, oh, I'd prefer just to rewrite the last like 20 years or so as long as we make sure this disaster doesn't happen. Here, we've moved forward. There are kids now. We don't want to erase them. So we got to do this the right way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting conflict. Yeah. Thanos really only becomes the villain again at like the end of Act 2. It trusts in its own premise. It, it trusts in its own. Well, he becomes the villain by bringing in the pre-Infinity War Thanos who hasn't achieved that goal yet. Mm. Yeah. And I love that because if you think about it from Thanos's point of view, obviously Infinity War was very much his story. He gets the hero shot. It's his journey. He accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. But he kind of approaches all this as someone with a burden, someone who the reluctant hero who has to do this. And then the Thanos in this version sees what happened and that people refuse to let go. And it's that action that causes him to say, right, I'm just going to remake the universe. So they make him 10 times worse, really, because they're trying to undo what he did. Mm. In essence, he becomes worse because he succeeded. Yes. They create an even worse version of Thanos because he sees through Nebula's recordings how they react to what he did when he won. We've kind of jumped ahead here. We were talking about Infinity War, and I want to say I think one of the best things about Infinity War is Thanos. I think he's the best villain that Marvel's come up with. Without question. Absolutely phenomenal. And it's like, it could have fallen apart because it needed to work. They built him up so much. If that had not worked, that entire film wouldn't have worked, but he worked. What I liked is they made the whole getting rid of half the universe thing a philosophical choice on his part instead of in the comic book he's literally in love with death with the cosmic personification of death and he wants to appease her so he kills half the universe i'm wondering if that was a way they were going to go because if you remember at the end of avengers or avengers assemble in the uk to court death it's yes i think it was a josh whedon idea to put thanos in i think
think I've read that that was his idea. Well done, Joss. Obviously, he wrote that line. He wrote the line to quote Death. Right. Obviously, a massive comic book fan. He knows Thanos's story in the comics about his infatuation with Death. So I always wonder if that was an idea. Mm. And that obviously they sort of stripped it down to what it became. And I don't think it works if you've got Thanos talking to this silent woman in purple robes and a skull face the whole time. No, I mean, you know. it just works when you've got one villain. And, you know, he is the Infinity Saga villain. It's more like I've seen the universe. I've figured out how to fix it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'll do anything to do that. That works better in the movies. I think that an audience can react better to that. Yeah, Thanos is definitely Thanos is definitely the best part of Infinity War in that he's the most developed character. I mean, I didn't like a lot of the responses to some of that character. You know, some of the people going, oh, I think Thanos has a point, which is, is right. rather <laughs> revealing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they make him an empathetic antagonist. You shouldn't really sympathize with him, but you sort of understand the logic that he's going through, even though he's right. a genocidal maniac. But he's the most developed character in that movie, which is understandable why I think so many people gravitated towards him, I think, because it is his movie. And one of the most satisfying moments in this film is just how brutally and just how quickly he gets killed off right at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Yes. And it's right in the middle of him speaking to Nebula, saying, oh, I should have treated you better as a daughter. And he's doing that whole father-child thing that is a key theme all throughout this movie and through the larger MCU. And he's basically doing the same kind of bullshit that he's been doing the entire time. And Thor just cuts him off mid-sentence. Chops his head off, yeah. <laughs> and it's a stunning rebuke to Thanos' entire philosophy. And then, 30 seconds later, does the five years later. That moment, going in without spoilers, was... That five comes up just for a second. I'm like, don't you do it. And then years later shows up like, bastards. <laughs> Both times I saw this film, the audience audibly gasped. And that just goes to show, you know, the confidence in those curveballs, the confidence in, in how it goes over these beats is really just amazing. And credit where credit's due, the trailers did not give away what this movie was about. I thought for sure it's all going to lead up to a second showdown with Thanos. Yeah. And it does, just not in the way I thought. No. Yes. Genius marketing. The Avengers reassemble and work towards it, work towards it, beat Thanos and get everyone back. No. They get to Thanos right away. Yeah. Well, the opening of the movie is technically a bit of a bait and switch in that they kind of set it up like the actual main storyline of the film is directly picking up from where Infinity War left off and then you realise oh, they're not doing that. Yeah. They're not doing that at all and suddenly you're left to linger on the actual consequences of it. Yeah. That was what actually really a pleasant surprise is that you expect one thing out of the movie and the Russos completely subvert your expectation and give you something very different and more satisfying, I think, than the conventional route that I think others probably would have taken. They do that a lot. If you think about the Russos' tenure with the MCU, they've done that a lot. They did it with Civil War where it's set up from the beginning that there's these other Winter Soldiers and you think, right, this is going to be the big fight at the end. It's going to be the three. It's going to be Iron Man and Cap are going to come back together. They're going to take on these soldiers and it doesn't happen and they do it in Infinity War where the entire story from the beginning is Thor is going to get this hammer he's going to take down Thanos he's going to stop Thanos and it doesn't happen or he just completely whiffed his opportunity (laughs) they're very good at doing that they're very good at as Matty was saying there about subverting expectations it's not just subverting expectations but it's them knowing exactly what the audience wants and they know what the audience thinks they're getting and they're really good at threading that needle of giving the audience what they want but then maybe giving the audience what they need yeah Yes, too. Both of those things. They never go too far in one direction, but they're playing both sides. They're surprising, but they're delivering at the same time. The Thanos decapitation is literally the embodiment of that, yeah. in that that's a big crowd-pleasing moment, but you don't expect
expect it to happen 10-15 minutes into the movie and happen that quickly. And not just that, but they play it as though it's not a good thing. Yeah. Yes. It is an act of failure. It is an act of frustration. And, mm. you know, Rocket says immediately after that happens, like, what have you done? Yeah. The audience feels that too. I will say, though, if that was just the movie, if <laughs> yeah. at that point it didn't go to the five years later, it just came up with the end credits and it turned out <laughs> the rest of the two hours was just a Marvel stockholders meeting where they're discussing how much profit they're going to make out of this film. <laughs> you know what? I still would have been satisfied. <laughs> Come next time. for <laughs> One of those shorts they were putting on the DVDs for a while. If it had been one of those just on the big screen, you know? Yeah. yeah. The five years later thing, though, not only is it a pleasant surprise on the front that you get more time with these characters, but they've grown substantially and they've changed significantly over the course of that time. And again, this was something they kept very well hidden. They kept Stum completely about is that many of these characters are not in the same form or same places they were that we left off in Fantasy War. I think they were making a very conscious decision here. They knew that inevitably things are going to have to reset themselves to a certain degree. All those characters that die at the end of Infinity War, most of them are coming back. That's just the inevitability of it. But there's that tricky balancing act between resetting and still having consequences for it. And I think that's where the five years later comes in, because as you mentioned, these characters move on with their lives, because they have to. That's all they can really do at that point. You're dealing with these characters who have grown dramatically, but you don't want to erase that. You don't want to snap that away when you do the second snap. We've done this thing with Iron Man that he's got a daughter now. We've done this thing with Hulk in that Bruce and the Hulk are one and the same now. Which I loved, by the way. Which I absolutely loved. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god, Mark Ruffalo is amazing. They did that for a while in the 90s. There was the Professor Hulk Mm. when he finally kind of successfully merged Banner and Hulk together. That's very much what that seems to be referencing. I love that so much. Especially when he's half-heartedly hulking out and he's just like, Uh, fine, fine, I don't want to do that. (laughs) That was a fairly great moment. He's so humiliated after he's doing that. (laughs) I love that. It's absolutely brilliant. The surprise is seeing the way that these characters change just from that leap in time. Again, it keeps going back to the thing of the movie surprises, but it does so in a way that feels satisfying, in a way that makes sense given what we've established with these characters. And I think it's because the Marvel Universe, because we're 22 movies deep into it now, Marvel has bought themselves the time to be maybe a little bit indulgent, but in a good way. Yeah, we can spend it on the remaining characters that we've got here and really flesh them out and really take them in very wild, unexpected directions. And I was actually surprised that some of the developments weren't actually reset. Like, I I kept expecting at some point Thor was going to get out of that fat suit. But he doesn't. Like, they were going to power him up and that would just take it away all of a sudden or something like that. But they never did anything like that. Speaking of that, those 22 years of films, the one elements I really love about this film is how it is in many ways a clip show of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe and that the film is about that legacy. Especially that second act. Yeah, especially the second act yeah. is about how we got here and the journey. Mm. It's almost amazing how they've structured this is that by structuring this entire phase of films around the Infinity Stones that when they want to do that big retrospective thing Infinity Stones are the structure that allows them to go back and revisit their films. That it keeps them thematically consistent. In a lot of ways this movie does feel like a victory lap but one that's very well earned and one that feels like they've spent a long time setting up for it so it feels earned. A victory lap with dramatic stakes and consequences. Mm. It's the ultimate season finale if you can think of like a show that's been on for you know a Game of Thrones I'll use that as the example you know staying topical. That makes sense I mean that's what's going on right now in TV terms and we're getting the same thing in movie terms I mean Marvel brought the TV formula to film essentially not to sort of 
go too far off topic, but this current season of Game of Thrones now, we're not giving away too much spoilers. It's doing exactly that. There's a lot of sort of callbacks to past seasons and characters all sort of coming together and having these great little character moments. That's exactly what this film was. It was these actors coming together. Not to give spoilers for um, Game of Thrones, but in a way it's like the first three episodes of the season, which is going to conclude tonight, or as we record this, is like the Infinity War of Game of Thrones. And I feel like the next three episodes will be the end game. Exactly right. Yeah, so it has that same feeling. Yeah. Almost the same approach. Mm. I'm just curious about how they go forward from here because Spider-Man is next and the only way that works is if like all his class was snapped away. (laughs) That would be funny. There should have been a scene where Flash Thompson comes in and he's five years older and he's graduated. Yeah. You know? (laughs) The universe is in a bit of a weird place, I'm going to have to admit. I mean, I made a point on my podcast notes of bringing this up, but when you think about it, the MCU universe is one of existential horror. It's a world where magic, aliens, and other universes exist, and also there are threats of alien invasion. There have been huge cataclysmic world events in the span of the decade a lot of the MCU has taken place in. Their place in the world is constantly being rewritten. And then Thanos comes along, wipes out half the universe, and then, five years later, the other half of that universe comes back like a blink of an eye has passed for them, but five years has passed for everyone else. That half still has major PTSD. (laughs) Yeah, the the other half is still incredibly traumatized, has tried to move on with their lives. In this universe, there is enough for several melodramas of people who have moved on with other partners, and then their original spouses pop back on their doorstep like nothing has ever happened. (laughs) It is one of those things where if you take it to its logical conclusion, which can be fun, but ultimately doesn't really serve the story, it's like, imagine if you're in an airplane (laughs) when you get snapped. Do you just appear in the air? Like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> hundred, like a, a mile over the ocean and just fall to your death? Is that how it works? Like I said, how are we going to do Far From Home now? Because Spider-Man, oh, I've missed five years of my life. God knows what happened to all my friends who weren't snapped and oh, my mentor's dead. But let's have a lighthearted uh, European tour. Kevin Feige has said that, hasn't he? That Spider-Man Far From Home is the end of phase three. Mm-hmm. Which is an unusual place. You would have thought it would be this. I'm going to assume it's a prequel to Infinity War. I think that would make the most sense. Well, Either that or it'll be treated as an epilogue. Maybe. A light way of sort of ending. Because I mean... Well, it could work as a prequel if it's an epilogue. There's a lot of questions and I'm not sure the tone is right after. Yeah. I'm sure Ant-Man came after Age of Ultron, didn't it? Yeah, Age of Ultron. Yeah, Yeah, Ant-Man closed out Phase 2. Yeah, right. So, which was weird to think that an Avengers movie didn't close out Phase 2. Yeah, and Ant-Man and Wasp followed Infinity War. Yes, mm-hmm. and then Cat Marvel. Yeah, yeah. They always balance the big one with the light one. I guess. Speaking of um, Cat Marvel, should we talk about how she was uh, integrated into this movie, or not really? Yeah, <laughs> or not. Uh... Another of my complaints. They made it seem right from that post-credit scene with Nick Fury in Infinity War that Captain Marvel was coming. I expect her to be a part of Avengers. I expect her to join the team, and she's really just got a glorified cameo at the beginning and at the end. Yeah, I saw Captain Marvel very late. The film. I actually saw it. Early this week so I saw it maybe three days before I saw an end game and I figured oh she's going to be let play a really big important part I need to catch up with this and it turns out um not really <laughs> not really at all <laughs> but also like she gets one of the bigger fight scenes at the very end of the movie where she goes mono e mano on Thanos and that's like one of the last major fight scenes in the film yeah so it's weird how they structured that and again in the comics Captain Marvel's powerful but they make her like almost a living god in these movies frankly I think she's a little too powerful in the movies. That's kind of my problem with Captain Marvel as a character, having seen both the movies that she's in this week, is that she's ridiculously overpowered and doesn't appear to have any obvious weaknesses. 
losses. It's hard to root for a character that can't be beaten. But I mean, more importantly, I've always thought that her power set was more energy based. Mm. It was more like shooting beams of light and using that to fly and all that. But then there's a moment where Thanos headbutts her. She's not phased by it one. She bit. doesn't flinch. No, no. In the comic books, she does have like flight and super strength. In fact, okay. Rogue from the X-Men took those powers from her for a long time. Got it. That's part of it. She does have the energy powers in the comics. I didn't understand the relationship from how she was hit by that blast in Captain Marvel. And I thought it was purely energy. I didn't get that she was given super strength or all that stuff. I, that was not conveyed to me in these two films. Yeah. So when that sort of stuff happens, I'm like, wait, what? Like Maddie, I saw um, Captain Marvel quite late. I saw it with Sarah. And I mean, Sarah fell asleep during Captain Marvel. <laughs> I wasn't that fussed on her. I liked her more in this film because she seemed to have a bit of banter with Rocket. She sort of had a bit of banter with Peter Parker. I don't know what it is about the Russo brothers. They're very good. And the guys who write these films as well, they're very good at really sometimes giving the characters better material than their solo films do. Mm. And it's purely that interaction with other characters. Yes. Seeing them bounce off each other, that makes those characters solidified and really spark. She doesn't have much to do, but she's much more likable in this film, I felt. Yeah. Unlike Brie Larson as a performer, but in, in Captain Marvel, she isn't given a whole lot to do because of the way that the character is yeah. trying to rediscover her past. So that doesn't really give her a lot to play. Well, it's the nature of the amnesia yeah. storyline that the character's not going to have much to draw on and it's all about the yeah. interactions with other people. But I've said at my review that going forward, we can start to develop the Captain Marvel character more, give her more personality, which I think we start to see a little in this. She needs a Winter Soldier. I think that's what they're going to do. I think the problem with Captain Marvel right now is that she is a very prominent character that has hasn't really got a lot going on right now, but is also ridiculously powerful. I mean, her re-entrance into this movie is that she flies right through Thanos' ship and blows it up single-handedly. <laughs> I go, well, yeah, you've got a little bit of a problem there. I can understand why you've written her out of most of the movie, because otherwise, <laughs> where are you going to have stakes? I really wanted them to cut back to Thanos and just go, motherfucker, I had two payments left. <laughs> <laughs> what you might notice about the Russo brothers especially is that they seem to have a problem with overpowered characters. Because mm. if you think about it, Vision was uh, nerfed. Exactly. From Civil War and Infinity War, they really nerfed Vision. And I read an interview saying that they were having problems with Captain Marvel. They were having problems sort of incorporating her into this world because of her power level. Mm. They've spent essentially two movies bringing Vision down in his power levels. They explain why in Civil War, why he doesn't use his power to the full extent because he doesn't want to hurt anybody. Yep. And obviously they stab him <laughs> immediately in uh, Infinity War which explains why he can't use his powers I was surprised Vision didn't come back in Endgame yeah, I thought that was a bit of a shocker well he wasn't snapped he wasn't snapped and I, like, I know but you know but that's one thing I really like about this film is that it introduces its own mechanics and I guess that the time stuff it, it gets a little muddled but in regards to the snapping and that mechanic it sticks to it and again it lets those consequences play out there's consequence for what's going on in the, yes there are some people that are going to be brought back but others are going to die and they're going to presumably stay that way? I mean, obviously, that's a bit of a question mark going forward anyway, but for now, there is sort of consequence to what's going on. Balancing everything, I think, was a particular challenge, because you've got a wide array of characters with different power sets and different abilities, and some are really powerful. So I think a lot of this film is actually devoted to trying to find ways of trying to 
depower them to a certain extent. Mostly on a psychological level, actually, when you think about Hulk. Thor, for sure. Oh, absolutely, Thor. And perhaps now is a good time to talk about that. Thor. Oh, my God. Fat Thor, I do believe, <laughs> I have my, my friends who believe that they took that a little too far. Uh, just yeah. the extent of how fat he was, making fun of him to that degree. But there's a great psychology to that. Like, the moment when Hulk mentions Thanos, and you just see his whole body language and his face just completely mm. change. And you see how, like, again, the alcoholism is just his way of coping with all this. It's, yeah. it's one of the most depressing things ever conveyed in a Marvel movie or a superhero film in general. And I'm going to get mixed things on this, but, you know, can I say as an overweight person, thank you that I'm so glad fat shaming <laughs> is still with us in modern movies. Thanks, Russo Brothers. Thanks. What I think has really sort of, like, happened with not just Thor, but Chris Hemsworth himself, when they hired Chris Hemsworth, I think they figured, we've got, and he is a very good-looking man. We've got yeah. this good-looking man. Then it was like, oh my god, he's funny. Yeah. After Thor Ragnarok, where it was like, he is very funny, they were just like, let him be funny. And you could clearly see there's a lot of Chris Hemsworth improv going on with the Thor bits. Yeah. yeah. Especially the scene where he explains the plot of Thor 2 was, was especially yep. funny. <laughs> with the headset gaming stuff. Yeah. Uh, was it uh, Fortnite? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but at the same point, I think they went a little too far with like the humor on Thor. And I get because the last movie had him angry and lost and depressed and stuff. So they wanted to go in a different way with this movie. But at the same point, I think Thor as a drunk loser went on a little too long for my liking. We got called back though. We got called back. Well, there you go. They definitely placed a lot of the accent on comedy with Thor, which I guess is the only way you can really handle that because otherwise the character has lost so much. Yeah. He has gone through so much. He's lost his mother. He's lost his father. He's lost his brother. He lost his sister. <laughs> uh, he's lost half the Asgardians. He lost his eye. Yep. Lost his eye. <laughs> uh, he failed to kill Thanos yeah. the first time. And uh, uh, briefly, just as a little aside, I will say that uh, Doctor Strange, I know that your doctorate isn't in magical foresight, so I'm, I'm going to say that there was actually two possibilities there in that uh, the other one is if Thor actually plunged Stormbreaker into his bloody head the first time around. <laughs> just nitpicking there, but anyway, <laughs> you know. So Thor has gone through a lot, but at the same time, when they try to tackle it through humour, you do get the sort of dark underpinnings, and they do come to the forefront every so often, but yes, a lot of it is kind of Chris Hemsworth riffing, because we know that he can carry that, and we know that that's actually his real strength. Oh, yes. And there's that cathartic scene with his mother. Rene Russo, Rene Russo, nice for her to finally get something to do at yes. last in these movies. Yeah. <laughs> and he left with Majolder, so did he just fuck over the uh, Thor 2 Thor? I uh, know, because uh, Cap took it back. If you remember, right at the very Oh, yeah, end. yeah, yeah. Okay. That's okay. true, that's true, that's true. When he's taking the stones back, he's actually got Mjolnir with him. This is where we should probably bring up the wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. Oh, no, I've gone cross eyed. God bless you, Stephen Moffat. The mechanics of the time travel in this movie are a bit confusing, to say the least. But you know what I loved? That they actually referenced that. Yes. They owned it. And they mentioned, like, every time travel movie you can think of. Tony Stark's line, you telling me that your plan is basically the plot of Back to the Future? I laughed my ass off when that was mentioned. <laughs> yeah. I didn't understand it, how the film presented it, until the scene with Tilda Swinton's character, the yeah, uh, yeah. Sorcerer Supreme. Having the visual aid really does help. <laughs> It's essentially the Doc Brown scene from if you think of Back to the Future oh, 2. Yeah. She does exactly the same thing. Except she doesn't use a whiteboard or a blackboard or a chalkboard. She just uses magic. magic That's yeah. what um, essentially they're using as a model here. The whole second act of the movie is basically the last portion of Back to the Future Part 2, but on an even grander scale. So when they reference Back to the Future, it's sort of in a kind of 
nodding but also backhanded way at the same time in that yes it's sort of like this we're doing this but we're not doing it the same way yeah you know in the back to the future is always sort of on the same constant timeline so that when things change in the past things that happen in the future are constantly shifting around that yeah whereas what is happening in endgame is essentially multiverses on top of each other multiple possibilities there are multiple divergent points from when they've jumped in essentially and changed things well kind of what they were saying is all that matters is the present mm-hmm. once you've lived through something you can't change that even if you go back and interact with it because it still had to happen that way for you to be where you are yeah you've just created an alternate dimension you've created an alternate dimension but it's not your alternate dimension per se you've created a splinter it still happened for you it's just happening different now for another version of yourself it gets a little bit surreal because that's so often how that's not really presented yeah because at the end they kill past thanos not only do they kill past thanos nebula killed herself in the past yeah <laughs> and i'm waiting for a minute for like her to fade out of existence like is that gonna happen not i, I did the same thing i did the same thing going oh oh then i have to remember <laughs> no all that matters is like the current version of yourself yeah the movie kind of plays a little bit fast and loose with things so we've got characters who have come back technically that will be sort of yeah. another universe incarnation of that character which is gamora is dead but now the past version of herself the angry i don't know how to love version is came into our present and loki's back loki has been revived they brought well that was, that was their way of walking back loki he's still dead in the current one but in an alternate universe he is alive and well and kicking and using that tesseract for shenanigans see that i thought that was going to be an explanation of how he had the tesseract in avengers infinity war he just picks it up and walks out with it but he actually escapes and i'm like wait what that how did that uh-oh and in um thor ragnarok that's when he got the uh, tesseract for avengers infinity war oh right right but you were mentioning that about gamora i always figured i know it's a sort of a bit up in the air at the minute but i felt gamora the 2014 version of gamora vanished when everyone else vanished after that battle you never see her again yeah. so we were gonna get into this because yeah. we actually talked about this before the podcast i, I wrote down in the notes because i already had a bit of a problem with gamora in this movie in the obviously they've kind of established it and they reiterate this when they kill off black widow when someone is sacrificed for the soul stone you can't bring them back anymore that's done they're dead dead not not half dead they're dead dead you can't use the stones to bring them back because that's um that's what um hulk tries to do not mostly dead they get around that by having this you know 2014 version of gamora who is obviously where she was at the beginning of guardians of the galaxy but now we've got kind of this issue if she's here and she's sticking around for future films that means that all her character development from the past two guardians movies has been completely erased especially in her relationship with peter i didn't consider that she'd been erased when jonathan brought that up that's a good point because uh nebula was in with the rest of the guardians at the end yeah. so i thought gamora would have been with her yeah my personal opinion on this is that she she got erased so when the ending happens and the entire thanos army which is essentially the 2014 inhabitants disappear she disappears with them now yeah we don't see it but we also don't see her again i personally think that Guardians of the galaxy 3 because it's going to involve adam and war i'm sure he's like the master of the soul realm he's definitely got something do with the soul stone because we know gamora is in the soul stone because thanos interacted with her at the end of infinity war think of it like the search for spock it could be the search for gamora i think it's going to be about getting her back i don't think she was snapped at the end you see quill looking at that screen with her picture and says searching yeah yeah i'm gonna take the assumption that when she aided nebula in her heart she has betrayed her father is no longer part of that army so tony stark can't snap her out of existence i'm sure tony said get rid of all the evil aliens exactly that's an area of confusion i think that has been 
kind yeah. of brought up that I didn't actually register when I when I watched the movie. It was only when I was discussing it with Welshy earlier, and I was like, oh, all right, yeah. When I was watching the movie, I was getting the same interpretation: is that what happened was is that Gamora was alive. She'd been brought back in this timeline. Obviously, had no connection with Peter or the other Guardians, so she'd scarpered off and did her own thing, and that's why Peter was searching for her in the final scene. But then, well, she brought up, but you don't ever see her after the snap, not even as like a brief establishing shot, and so that creates vagueness now as to whether or not she actually survived that. And I think, I think it's a, I think it's a simple goof. I think they just needed one shot of her leaving the battlefield. Yeah, unless she did get snapped. Yeah, it could go either way. She didn't. Just that idea of them snapping her without them showing that. I think that'd be ridiculous. Yeah. Not just that, but she was fighting on Tony Stark's side. She was fighting alongside Nebula and Captain Marvel and Gwyneth Paltrow and all those people. So I think Tony saw that. But Tony Snap did erase the enemies, but it erased the in 2014 Invaders. Well, and she is one of those. because it No, did, but she, it she was fighting alongside them. Yeah. I think we just have to agree that it's a gray area right now. All right, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> we need Guardians of the Galaxy 3 information before we can uh, call on that. Yeah, it's a bit of an unfortunate one. It's one of the um, kind of few real lapses is Gamora and her character, I think, in general. I mean, not just the way that her face is now really vague yeah. for no real reason. Like, I get the impression that actually, I could be wrong here, that, well, she was right, that at one point in the movie, she got snapped away like all the rest of them did, and then they realised, oh, that's bad. We've just killed her off again after resurrecting her. Why have we done that? And then they cut that shot, and now there's a kind of, wait, what, what? Okay. There's a weirdness going on there. There's something a bit weird about that whole thing. Although, if they do do that with Anna Warlock, could that be a way to bring the Black Widow back now? Yes. Yes. That's the thing, is that Guardians 3, we don't know where things are going to go from this point forward. It's kind of weird. I think the Guardians are a little bit underserved by these two Avengers movies. Well, I mean, it's just Rocket and Nebula in the second one. Yeah. I get the weird impression that the Russos aren't the hugest of fans of the Guardians of the Galaxy and the way that Peter Quill becomes essentially an idiot. Like, I know that's part of his character, but wow. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. They don't seem to like him very much. (laughs) No, they really don't. (laughs) Guys, you do realize, though, now, just think about this for a second. We are getting a Guardians of the Galaxy 3 with Thor written by James Gunn. Yeah. That excites me. Well, unless the first scene is the door closing and everyone waving, bye Thor. <laughs> no, don't do that. See you later. We need, we need this. This would be amazing. <laughs> well, in the comics, it's actually Iron Man who goes into space with the uh, Guardians for a while. Yes, that's true. I remember that was being heavily theorized back in like 2013 or whatever. That is the question mark, is what is going to happen with Guardians 3 in that setup? And Do you mean the Asgardians? No. Of the galaxy, if they name it that, that'd be that'd be great. But no, they won't. They won't. You never know. You never know. There is a comic book right now as Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, maybe. Oh my god. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Whatever pun you can think of, there's a comic book making a buck off it. Guardians three is meant to come out in like what 2022, 21 or so. Well, it's delayed now because guns on Suicide Squad. Maybe they make as Guardians of the Galaxy, then they do <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Who knows? It was supposed to be sort of like one of their big Phase Four films that was going to basically sort of lead the way for. Phase is for, but then obviously we know what happens. Thor, Valkyrie, and giant Peter Dinklage in space. Yes. Yeah. That'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the Thor Guardians cross 
also makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because the way that Taika Waititi directed Ragnarok, it does feel like it has the sort of same kind of sensibilities that Gunn brought to the Guardians film. So on that level, it, it makes sense. And also, I'm pretty sure I've read this, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Gunn write, I think he definitely wrote the Guardians Thor dialogue in Infinity War. I'm pretty sure yes. he did. Or he helped at least co-write it. Yes. I'd imagine Gunn had a bit, because he has an executive producer credit on this movie, which I think is partly because the Guardians are in it, but I do think there was some level of influence, because obviously um, Sean Gunn would be working on this movie, he was doing the performance capture for Rocket, so there would have been a little bit of control there, I think. You know, I want to go back 10 years to when James offers Sean the role as Rocket, like, you want to motion capture a raccoon? I'm like, I don't know, what can come of it? 10 years later, he's sharing the screen with Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Scarlett Johansson, <laughs> like, yes! I love being a raccoon! I was actually pleasantly surprised that Rocket survived actually because um... yeah and I love that little moment where Rocket when Thanos is raining down hell and fire on everybody and Rocket throws himself on Groot it's a quiet moment that you could blink and miss it what a lovely little moment was it Gunner the Russo brothers said that the last I am Groot in Infinity War was goodbye dad, dad. yes and that was just heartbreaking that was a uh, gun who said that yeah I remember um, hearing that when they were writing Infinity War and Endgame that one of the initial ideas was that Rocket would die and Groot would be part of the Avengers uh, in this one but they decided that was too complicated like all the other Avengers had learned Groot by now yeah they decide Rocket was the better choice <laughs> except Ant-Man who was like what? I don't know how that would have worked there's only so much that you can do with that exactly. you can only, yeah. there's only so much you can do with Groot so I can understand why they picked Rocket instead got a little old after three hours I guess the fact they put Rockets and Thor together on their mission that was kind of foreshadowing yeah. that eventual sort of team up at the very end yeah but also you've got the interaction in Infinity War I mean that interaction between Thor and the Guardians, especially the Chris's, Chris Hemsworth and Pratt, was gold. Absolute gold. I think if you count the screen time, Rocket's probably interacted with Thor more than he's interacted with most of the Guardians. Yeah. If you just look at pure screen time. So it makes sense then to keep those two together because that's a really strong bond. It's the same as um, in the last Guardians movie where he spent a lot of time with um, Michael Rooker's character. Mm -hmm. It's sort of similar to that. Rabbit is correct. Yeah. A lot of what they did on Infinity War and Endgame is basically trying to capitalize on what they've already done in Civil War. Essentially, the Russos had taken the same form that they did for Captain America Civil War, and then they replicated it for Endgame on an even bigger scale than they did previously for Infinity War. I think what was really satisfying about it is because the movie had taken so much time at the beginning of it, once you get to the big action bit at the end, it does feel like it's earned. Yes, I agree. This goes back to the problem I had with Infinity War in that it's all battle, essentially. It's all set up. Whereas at the end of Endgame, it feels like a big climactic battle. It feels like, okay, we're in a position now where we've spent so much time with these characters, we know the stakes, we've got very personally invested with them, let's go. Yeah. Let's essentially do the Marvel Royal Rumble. I agree, but again, you need Infinity War, really, to sort of put the threat of Thanos over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Without that, the payoff is just not satisfactory. Infinity War feels like a necessary evil. Infinity War is preemptive, whereas Endgame is reactive. Infinity War, they're going to the gems to try and stop this tragedy. In Endgame, they're trying to bring the gems to them to undo it. Yeah. Infinity War, it's all of them reacting to this, like, we got ten minutes till the world's over, we have to do something now. Whereas this movie, it's like, they have to initiate that themselves. Nothing's inciting them to do this. This is purely their own decision. Mm. And I really like that element to it. And in many ways, like, the way the time travel mechanic is structured, it's like, the real villains of these movies is like, the older versions of the characters. Yeah. Actually, that seems like a very conscious decision, I think, on their part, is that 
it reiterates the growth that all these characters has had. So a lot of the roadblocks they run into are literally themselves. It's almost like um, speed running a game you've already played before. It's like Cat America. He's in that elevator, and it's obviously it's quoting Winter Soldier like crazy. That is an amazing scene, by the way. Yeah, they're doing the Winter Soldier scene before it happens. And yeah, I love the Hail Hydra moment. That's an amazing, amazing callback. Yes. Yeah. Because he's learned those lessons, he knows everything, so he can go through that with efficiency. Does everyone remember for about two weeks on the internet, everything was Hail Hydra after yeah. Winter Soldier. Oh, yeah. Everyone was tweeting Hail Hydra. Every meme was Hail Hydra. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, that's the thing. That sequence is a reference going back to Winter Soldier, but I was expecting that fight scene to happen again, and then it doesn't. Yeah. Which is great. Like, it's a nice little wink and then a misdirection. It's nice for Captain America for once to be the guy to outsmart somebody instead of outfight them. <laughs> or he plays the Bucky card on himself. That was great. And the, uh, I could do this all day. I know! Like, <laughs> well, the subsequent sequence where he's fighting himself, uh, this felt more like a subtle kind of nod. If anything, it's a warning against having too much glass in your building. I'm like, those guys are going to be shredded by the time they hit the floor. I think the way that that fight was staged, where they were all up on the platforms, I don't know if anyone else got this, it felt geographically in the same way kind of similar to the fight scene at the end of The Winter Soldier, when he's yep. facing off against Bucky, yeah. that, like a subtle callback there. When he was on the aircraft carrier. But I, again, what I liked about that was, if you think about it, right back when they're all in the room together, Loki turns into Captain America yeah. when he's mocking him. So then it makes sense for Steve yeah. to see a second Captain America and just assume it's Loki. It all makes sense. The setups and the payoffs are so good. Like, the small payoffs are built upon and the larger payoffs across the entire narrative are really paid off. They hit all of them pretty much. Especially when you're thinking of characters that are making their exit in this entry, like Steve or, like, Stark. Both of them have their arcs returned to and wrapped up, essentially. Yes. Agreed. And what I like about it is that they don't immediately open the film. Thanos won, let's get back together. It's like, no, they open the film and Tony, not only is he dehydrated, hungry, thirsty, dying, he's still furious with Captain America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's still pissed off. Cap, you were wrong. Yeah. And I gotta say, the computer effects on Robert Downey Jr. to make him look so emaciated were incredible. Yeah. My God, he looked genuinely ill when you see that sequence. And I'm just like, that's incredible. The effects work in this movie is really astonishing. I mean, there's a couple of little wobbly bits, like the stuff with the Mark Ruffalo Hulk. It's a little bit kind of weird, uncanny valley at times. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. It's not as tangible as, say, Thanos is. The one shot of Michael Douglas, they've tried to go back even further than they did um, in the Ant-Man movies, where they kind of brought him back to Wall Street era Michael Douglas, and now they're going to, like, China Syndrome era Michael Douglas. (laughs) That's like a bit, Streets of San Francisco. It was both impressive and weird. (laughs) It was just a little bit too smooth. And that's the thing, it's hard, it's really hard. But then, like, really old Steve Rogers worked. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. That was incredible. You look great. I think what probably the most important segment in this film, obviously outside of the big battle stuff, is uh, the section where Tony Stark and Steve Rogers go back to the 70s to that military-based fair thing that's happening. Right. Speaking of uh, CGI effects, they did the de-aging on uh, Stan Lee, didn't they, in his final cameo? Very quick. Yeah. Make love, not war, you dirty. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the most important sequence in the film, really, because it brings back a lot of the key elements to do with both of those characters characters and it also resolves a lot of their differences that they've established over civil war they both get a chance at going into contact with people that they've lost over time reconnecting with their pasts a little bit as well mm-hmm. he finally gets to give his dad that goodbye hug well stark also gets that connection with his father that he never really had when he was alive yeah seeing that his dad is nervous about his soon-to-be-born son yeah 
Yeah. It's been a long-standing thing with Stark's portrayal in this movie, or Tony, to just avoid a confusion, is that Tony always has a lot of deep-seated anxieties. Issues. He's got daddy issues. Yeah. He has got daddy issues by the ton. But it's the three of them, if you think about it, because Tony gets to sort of get that moment with his father. Captain America gets to have a moment in that past where he gets to sort of see the life he could have had, and Thor gets to have that moment with his mother. The three main Avengers, the three main guys, all have that very cathartic moment. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Caps was that cathartic. I is, I would say. And also that theme of fathers and sons, you've also got that to do with Nebula and Thanos running all throughout the movie and Gamora as well at the same time. So you've got it in multiple strands of this movie. Yeah. I say about Cap, though, he doesn't have it there, but he does have it at the end because he finally has that dance with Peggy. He finally gets to have that dance. He gets it in the end. Although, does that screw up her timeline because she mentioned being married? He's erased somebody. Did they just screw <laughs> over the her love interest from the Agent Carter show? Yeah. No, I think that's just an alternate timeline now. Yeah. So we've brought up a whole can of worms here. I'll briefly go through them one by one. So Peggy's um, reappearance in that sequence uh, is sort of like the setup for the ending, really, isn't it? Because it's a very yes. brief moment where he realizes, oh, I'm, I'm in her office. Let me just butt in there real quick. How great was it to see Jarvis? Yes, yeah, so that was just what I was about to say, yeah. Okay. Well, that's the weird thing about the Marvel film continuity is that they never really tried to bring the TV shows in, not properly. And so seeing Jarvis on the screen, James D'Arcy, reprising his role from the Agent Carter TV show and I guess making that properly officially canon, that was a surprising moment. The network TV shows and the, even the Netflix stuff would reference the movies, but it would it was never went the other it way. It was never reciprocated. The movies would be too elitist and not mention... <laughs> yeah. They're like the friends they're not really proud of having. They're like, yeah, yeah, that person. <laughs> Although I do kind of wish that they'd gotten the um, actor who played Howard from Agent Carter in. Yeah, Dominic Cooper played him on the TV show, reprising his role from Captain America, right. the first one. Then there was the one from Mad Men who played him in uh, Ant-Man. Yeah, they brought back Tony Slasher in this movie. They did a little bit of de-aging on him, but that's been a rough couple of years for Howard Stark, hasn't it? He yes. turned from Dominic Cooper to Tony <laughs> Slattery in about the space of maybe uh, less than a decade. If you watch the movies, they pull a looper, right? Where you go from Joseph Gordon-Levitt to uh, Bruce Willis. His hair went from black to blonde really quickly. Yeah. Uh, John Slattery. Oh, is it John Slattery? Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Tony Slattery sounds like the guy who played the Mandarin. Though. Tony Slattery was the guy that played the Mandarin. Trevor Slattery. <laughs> Trevor Slattery. Okay. Yep. Trevor Slattery. I'm just typing away on Google here for these Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad someone is. <laughs> <laughs> They brought back nearly everyone in this movie, didn't they? Yeah. I was surprised just how many people they brought back. Even at the end with the funeral, with that lineup of all the different casts, and like, even I was getting lost. Like, who the hell is that kid standing there? Like, oh. That was the kid from Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3, yeah. Oh <laughs> my god, you're kidding! Yeah, that's the little boy from Iron Man 3. Oh wow, shit. Apparently there's a lot of screenings of people going, who the hell is that? Audibly out loud. <laughs> it's because the kid's grown up. That's why you don't recognize yeah. him. I mean, I exactly. didn't recognize him until someone points it out to me. I was like, oh, that makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. Oh, wow. We'll deal with a couple of things with the ending. That final shot where they're all um, converged together for Tony's funeral was a one take, wasn't it? Yes. It was a single yeah. continuous shot. They were all there and it was one shot, yes. Someone mentioned this to me. I think it was Nash from uh, Radio Dead Air. The film's ending goes more for emotional resonance than maybe it does for its own internal logic, which is understandable. I think it's more satisfying that way, but I think you get the nitpicky people that I think are going to be like, well, it doesn't strictly adhere to it, but sometimes the emotional impact of something is more important than Trump 
logic in that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what the mechanic is there. So the shot of Tony's funeral where you have pretty much all the Avengers and all the associated characters there, maybe if you're kind of looking at it closely going, well, you know, the people from Wakanda don't even know who Tony is. I don't think they've actually met him in continuity. Yeah. But the symbolism of the shot of what Tony Stark represents in-universe and what Robert Downey Jr. represents outside of it, you know, it makes sense. He's the one that kind of kicked this whole thing off. He got the ball rolling. Yeah. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think the order in which all the characters are lined up is the order in which they were introduced into the series. Yes. So like Don Cheadle and John Favreau are first, and then you get Cat America, then you get Thor. Yeah, the only person who's not is Fury, because Fury comes in right at the end, but then that's almost like a callback to Iron Man, where well, he, he comes in, in right, at the, right end. at the end. Yeah. It's an emotional wrap-up to the story. Yeah. And that's having that symbol from the first movie of the proof that Tony Stark has a heart, having that go off. That was wonderful. John Favreau being yeah. there. The cheeseburgers line. The cheeseburgers, yeah. And the symbolism as well, if you think about it, because during that fight with Thanos, it's the three Avengers, it's the three main men. It's Tony Stark, Iron Man, it's Thor, it's Captain America. They were the three from Avengers 1 when, after Tony and Thor had that fight, it's that three shot of them. At the end of Age of Ultron, it's the three of them leaving the compound together. The three of them then come together to face Thanos. Captain America, the first Avenger, then faces Thanos before everybody comes through. Just that wonderful journey. That whole thing has gone on. That's what we say when we say what an incredible feat this is. This isn't just one film. This is the combination of, what is it, 22 films? Yeah, this is the 22nd film. Over 11 years. That's what makes those kind of moments, as you were saying, they're so powerful. It's just that it pays off not just Infinity War. It pays off this entire saga. Speaking of moments, my favorite moment in Endgame, I knew it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I could have lifted it at any time. I just don't want to make you feel bad in old Age of Ultron. <laughs> in the UK, we don't usually have cinemas where people cheer and shout and yell or applaud. But my God, that brought the house down. When that came back, because I thought, okay, Thor's calling it. I think a lot of people probably thought it because it was very smartly shot. But then when it rebounds back into Cap's hand, my God, the place went crazy. It reminded me of in Force Awakens when Rey gets the lightsaber. Yeah. Very similar to that moment. That was a big moment in my audience the other big moment was when the snapped Avengers return yes the roof went off the building with that that sort of got murmurs going and people were obviously sort of sitting up but then when Cap says Avengers assemble Assemble. that brought the house down (laughs) I didn't have a lot of crowd whooping in my screening but I was seeing it at 11am on a Friday fairly packed screening still but I still walked into the cinema going hey I want two tickets hey walked right back in but uh, I did get a lot of audience laughter there was a lot of really big laughs I think America's ass got the biggest reaction (laughs) it got a round of applause at the end as well with our screening when the credits rolled which again amazing credits because it has the original Avengers signing off yeah Yeah. I thought that was beautiful Mm -hmm. I thought that was really really tastefully done Really mm. cool. Going back to the ending very quickly and going back to the sort of um, emotion trumping over logic, Steve's exit, the film disobeys its time travel logic, technically speaking, when it does that, that ending where he doesn't come back, he ages through, except of course we've established that they're going over multiple timelines, so technically he'd still be in the timeline that he decided to settle in. We have to assume that he coordinated with someone to bring him back just to say hello? Maybe? No, I thought he lived through it the long way. Yeah. That's that's true. Well, 
was the point. He lived through it the long way, but he would have lived through it the long way in whatever time stream that he was in, yeah. but not the original one. But it doesn't yeah. really matter, does it? Not really, because that's not the point. No, it's the ending you want for him and the ending he deserves, really. Yeah. yeah. It's mainly because it doesn't conflict with the causality of the movie beforehand. Yeah. It only sets up things going forward. Mm. So if, like, Cat and Arca did that, which gave them a boost to help stop Thanos in this movie, I think that would be a substantial criticism mm. but because it's more about the emotional payoff I'm fine with it and it's nice that the last shot of the movie for a refreshing change is not like a big going into space shot it's not a big epic battle moment it's not a cliffhanger it's a resolute ending and it's small and it's intimate and it's Steve and Peggy dancing it's an emotional moment because it's these two characters who've been kept apart finally getting together yeah exactly and that's been the key for the entire Marvel Universe you strip them down and they are about those smaller relationships it's the character moments it's the yeah. characters and their moments i was genuinely moved by it. i was genuine i mean yeah. when you think about the character again the fact that the relationship that steve has had with peggy over the course of these films he's seen her die he was at her funeral in civil war he snogged her niece or daughter or whatever the hell she was <laughs> yeah that's gonna create for some awkward thanksgivings <laughs> yeah when the blonde niece comes over and is making goo goo eyes at her uncle <laughs> but i will say though i generally don't get sort of you know emotional I don't of, uh, normally but... but I'll say the one thing that greedy got to me when Tony hugged Peter that yeah. got to me again I love the way down he played it I love the way that he just sort of stares at Peter for a few moments and then just says come here come here come here and then hugs and then they do the close-up on his face and the way Downey Jr. played that was so wonderful mm. and that's a callback to Spider-Man yeah the first one where he said I'm not gonna hug you get out the car <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the emotional moment that really resonated with me and I'm not sure if this is just me being weird but it's one that I haven't actually seen brought up very much it's the scene where where Ant-Man reunites with his daughter five years later. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I... That scene was like a gut punch, and I don't know why, but it really affected me. Because it's conflicting emotions and everything, and it's that idea of, like, he's processing so much, and we're processing so much. His little girl's now all grown up, and she's seen a dad who's been missing and presumed dead for five years. I mean, that's... Yeah. She lost both of her parents in the snap, presumably, as well, so... Yeah, you can assume, because you never see her mother, so you can well, that's, assume that. That's... Well, we don't know that for sure. Yeah. That would have been something good to have learned but i think the, this movie opens with a gut punch with hawkeye oh god oh man and they did that tastefully as well yeah just to show how blissfully happy he is and then it's all gone yeah. Yeah. Just to remind you of how bad that snap was, how much it's just messed everybody up. And again, it's a small moment. The film yep. starts small and it ends, ends very small. small. When he turns around to his daughter, the ashes are almost gone. They're just there for a second or so. You can just yeah. barely see them. There's this great video series on YouTube. Forgive me, I can't remember. It's the called guy Comic who... Book Issues. I host oh, yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. There's another great video series online, but it's about how the Russo saved Tony Stark. In that's how they took him from the wisecracking guy he was under Josh Whedon. Full fat videos. Yes. Yes, yes. Yep, yep. They did the same thing with Thor in Infinity War. So I've always kind of seen the very first Avengers as Captain America's story. Age of Ultron was very much Tony Stark's story, and Infinity War was very much Thor's story. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting with this one that Hawkeye gets a massive amount of character development and growth in this film. It's still, to me, very much Cap's story and Tony's story, but I think Hawkeye gets like sort of triple billing with them in terms of his character growth and development. Hawkeye also gets some amazing action bits. Mm. Uh, the intro 
intro scene with him in Japan is genuinely oh, amazing. What a shot. A one-shot take as well. Was that guy he fighting the Shogun from Westworld? It looks like the guy from The Wolverine. Yeah, it was um, Hiroyuki Sanada. I must be a sad person. I can actually name him without actually having to Google that, but I will <laughs> double-check if he was in Westworld. That's impressive. So I just watched season two on Blu-ray. He was in The Wolverine. He was uh, okay. Shinjin uh, okay. in, in The Wolverine, but he was, he's also been in 47 Ronin. He was uh, in, in Westworld. Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> What do you guys think of... I was surprised. I was surprised. I think what hurt it a little bit was it couldn't match the impact of the scene from Infinity War. But what did you think about the scene between Black Widow and Hawkeye on the Voimir cliffs for the Soul Stone? Hmm. I knew what they were each going to try and throw themselves over and the other was going to try and stop them. Yeah. I think I love the execution of that scene. Sorry, pardon the pun. But I don't think the film did a good enough job of solidifying Natasha's death. They barely brush upon it afterwards. I would have liked to a shared funeral between her and Tony Stark but I understand yeah. that yeah. is more important to the universe at large my sort of thinking about that is that that scene they're not only saying goodbye to Tony Stark they're saying goodbye to Robert Downey Jr yeah. whereas Widow we know has a prequel film coming up right yeah. yeah that's true so she's not leaving the universe just yet it's a bit of a weird one that whole sequence is based around the relationship that Natasha has had with Hawkeye and the problem is that I was trying to think about this is that I understand why they sent Hulk to New York to interact with the Sorcerer yeah. Supreme as a scientist and he would explain the time travel logic but they'd established in Age of Ultron that that was more the romantic relationship that Black Widow had whereas Black Widow and Hawkeye they had a sort of mutual respect for one another it's more a brother-sister thing yes yeah, and that's been established from the very first Avengers because if you remember when she's been interrogated the only reason she stops the interrogation is because she finds out that Barton's been compromised she talks about how he said to her life in that scene with loki yep it's uh it says is this love and it's like no not like that you know? the problem with the english language is that the word love is not very descriptive and specific right <laughs> but one of my issues with this movie and whenever i say i had a problem with it, it these are very minor nitpicks because i overall love this film mm. after age of ultron they never really addressed the hulk black widow relationship again i thought for sure no. it would get addressed in this movie because they don't touch on it in infinity war it's like oh i'm back like and they just kind of look. stare at each other for a moment they have a moment yeah. And it's never discussed. Yeah. They've had five years and they just, they're kind of flirty at lunch, but that's about it. I mean, yeah. and he's like, I tried to bring her back. Like, why? You don't seem to really care that much about her, man. It's just kind of abandoned after Age of Ultron. And I felt that was one of the lingering plot threads that I thought for sure would be addressed in Endgame, but it never is. Yeah. Again, with a movie series that's 22 films, there are, of course, going to be dropped plot threads and things like that. And the fact that it isn't a giant mess of things going everywhere is a miracle, but it is still a shame when something like that is brought up and not fully touched upon. Exactly what Jonathan said. I can't say it better myself. It's just that really, if you think about it, not just Avengers, Age of Ultron, this Endgame, these films should not work. The amount of people who are in this film, the stars, this is not like a star and then supporting actors. These are stars. Mm. It should not work, but it does. That's because of what Marvel have managed to do with this universe. They've taken their time, they've plotted and planned and really thought about this, and it's why every other cinematic universe, DC, the Universal Horror thing, it has not worked because they literally just jumped in and said, we're making a universe. Is that why DC hasn't worked? Because it does feel very much there's stars and then there's supporting cast. Superman and Batman are stars. The rest are supporting cast. Yep. And what Marvel did really well is that they took actors and made them stars. Whereas the Universal Horror is a good example of this, where they took stars. They took Johnny Depp and Tom Cruise and everything. And they were like, these people will come and see these films because of the stars. And they didn't. Robert Downey Jr. was on his comeback with Iron Man. He wasn't the megastar he is now. Chris and Evans, Iron Man 
wasn't that big of a character in the Marvel no. Universe. He was catapulted because of the film. They took a gamble and it worked. The biggest example of this, with, again with DC, is that they bet big on Ben Affleck and that ultimately didn't work out for them. But the two characters they've easily had the most success with are Aquaman and Wonder Woman. Wonder both Woman. of which are not played by A-list celebrities, at least before they were cast. No, and they were fantastic. Yeah. And Aquaman, I wouldn't say, is a big, big character in the same league that Iron Man used to be in. It made a $1.1 billion. I'll go this one further. I think my favorite has been Shazam. Yeah. Yeah, I would actually agree. Which was really funny and stars like a TV actor. Because, I mean, he's primarily known for that Chuck show, I believe. They took a chance. And it worked. And that's the thing. When you get the best actor for the role. Yep. They took these B-story characters. I guess you could say that. Yeah. You know, now they're not seen as that. But back then they were. I didn't know who Iron Man was back then. At the time these movies started coming out, the X-Men were huge and the Avengers were dead in the water. I knew who Captain America was because I think everybody knows who Captain America was. But I didn't know who Iron Man was. I didn't know who Thor was. Guardians of the Galaxy? Who knew of them? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, DC did sort of do that. I mean, for all the folks of Suicide Squad, everyone knows what that group is now. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, yeah. swings and roundabouts. But also in, in a modern context where we don't really have A-list celebrities anymore, it's good to get non-stars into these roles because then that's how you prop them up to the big leagues. And you can mold them into the role rather than have the role fitted around them. Exactly. Which I think makes her a better character in a movie. But do you think then that might be a problem with Brie Larson? Because she's an Oscar winner, so she is yeah. quite the star. You know, again, I just think it was the nature of the story that the Captain Marvel character was kind of a blank. The best part of the uh, Captain Marvel, I think, was her interactions with Sam Jackson. Yes, for sure. I agreed. Because Sam Jackson is awesome. <laughs> Great chemistry there. But, you know, like going forward, now that she remembers, now that she has these memories, maybe they can make her a fuller character. And she really needs that Winter Soldier-like sequel where she's paired up with someone unconventional and put in a conflict that really challenges her. I'm really looking forward to that, if they can make that. She really needs to be depowered because, you know, agreed. you can't root for a character who can't get hurt. Yeah, I think that I think what they're probably going to do with the Captain Marvel sequel is they're going to find some way of sort of get rid of her powers for a certain extent of it. Bring the X Men in and then have Rogue take her powers just like in the, the comics. Powers, yeah. I get the impression that the Captain Marvel sequel probably won't actually be set on Earth for most of it because the way that they keep establishing other galaxies. Yeah, I mean she's probably going to be another space hero like the Guardians. It's going to be on another world. It's going to be sort of in that direction. Again, I was expecting her to come back and join the Avengers, and it didn't really work out. She's kind of her own entity. She's She's not part of the Avengers brand of Marvel Cinematic Films. I wrote about this uh, a little while ago, but my concern when I heard about you know Captain Marvel coming in, especially with the way she was being powered, if you bring her in and leave her on Earth, you don't need the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get around that by not having her on Earth. That works. You know, don't have her on Earth. I did like that they updated her costume and haircut to match what's currently in the comics. Yes, with the haircut. Yes. Oh yeah, her look was great towards the end of this film, and her fight with Thanos. Loads of characters have a dramatic change. I wouldn't say I was the biggest fan of Hawkeye's hairdo. Yeah, the costume identity you have for Ronan is from the Ronin. New Avengers comic, so that's another callback to the books. Yeah. yeah. Although they never really explain why he thinks going on a killing spree with criminals is a good idea, other than he's just in so much emotional pain that he's lashing out. I kind of figured it was he'd lost the people who mattered to him the most, so he was getting rid of the cruel people who somehow survived. I don't know they actually established that, but that's the kind of way I kind of sort of looked at it. It's not hard to justify. It's just, it would have been nice for him to put it into words. Right, yes. 
Here's a big one for you. The first openly gay character in the MCU is in this movie, if you can spot him. (laughs) It's the director. Yes, Joe Russo makes a cameo in this movie. He's in the support group that Captain America's in, and he's talking about his date, and he's on a date with a man. Congratulations, there's a gay character in an MCU movie now. I'm just going to suggest this now. We've aged Cassie up. Hawkeye has a daughter with a bow and arrow. Let's start the Young Avengers movie. Yep, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually do that. And then you can have Hulkling and Wiccan who are a gay couple in that film. Here's the thing with that is that, yeah, we got a gay character in the MCU and it's an extra character. Yeah. Played by the director no less. Yeah, tertiary <laughs> character. You just go, oh, really? Okay, yay, representation but at the same time, you could have done more with it, especially given that um, Marvel backtracked on Valkyrie, didn't they? Yeah. Because yeah. in Thor Ragnarok, they cut out an explicit reference to her being in a relationship in a, in a backstory. Like, it's there it's insinuated but they didn't make it explicit who played her? Tessa, Tessa Thompson. Thompson I'm sure I read an interview where she said she played Valkyrie as bisexual yeah. mm-hmm. that came across to me in her characterization, but mostly in the fact the um in the backstory one of her fellow warriors that right, she right. clearly seemed quite emotionally attached to so I got the impression that that was there but it's never like directly mentioned it's kind of like Grindelwald sort of yeah well oh don't get me started on that no I'm sorry I, I don't want to open old wounds <laughs> and everything but they kind of sidestep <laughs> They were playing it a bit coy. Like, again, it's the sad part of the capitalist way that these movies are run, that if you want to have a major Chinese audience, like, I don't think you could have a openly gay leading superhero and not get a release in China. That's the unfortunate part, isn't it? That's probably have to make it lower budget you'd probably have to make it one of the smaller heroes and bank on a north american heavy release progress moves slowly in the marvel universe it took us eight nine years to get a black star in a superhero movie to get a female-led superhero movie so you know yeah yeah i mean it's only recently that we've had a black-led one in the form of black panther uh, the first female-led superhero movie in the form of captain marvel they were way late on the latter yeah and i'll say this when i went to see black panther more than half the audience was black and they gave it a standing ovation at the end so that shows how important this kind of representation is like yeah okay it's great that we finally have at least one character who is gay in the mcu but it feels half-hearted like yay we got the director to do it so that we can't cut it out this time you know yeah like, as you said jonathan i can understand it because this is a world where bohemian rhapsody has been released in several territories and they've edited out references to freddie mercury's sexuality on top of the film already being heavily biased and censored against his relationship it's really unfortunate. I mean, it's progress, but it's slow progress. Speaking of which, we'll go to the final battle, and uh, there was that moment where they get all the uh, all the women together, mm-hmm. which I thought was a nice moment, but it you know it definitely be accused of pandering a little bit. I liked it. I liked it. It felt like a callback to the Infinity War scene where the women back up Scarlet Witch. I agree, but this is this is my problem with it. I felt that scene in Infinity War with Scarlet Witch, uh, Scarlett Johansson's character. I cannot remember her her name. I'm so sorry. Akoya. Yeah, from The Walking Dead, yeah. And when they fight um, one of Thanos' children. To me, that felt like a, I'd say, earned moment. It felt like a natural coming together of these three characters and this person. Almost more importantly, in the geography of that action scene, that team-up makes sense. Yeah. It is a fabricated moment, obviously. Like, this movie kind of stops being a movie at a certain point. And especially that moment is like, we're pitching ideas for future sequels we may or may not do. That moment for me felt like a studio note. Every moment in this movie, essentially, to me, feels 
was a natural part of the story. That bit when all the Avengers line up, and you can see men and women all together, and Captain America, there's not like a row of men, you know, and no women. They're all together. And Captain America says, Avengers, assemble, and they all charge forward. And when they're charging forward, you see the men and women all fighting together. That bit, when Captain Marvel leads the female Avengers, I guess you could sort of say, that to me feels like a studio note. You've got to include this. But what upset me the most about that is that Black Widow wasn't in that sequence. To me, she's done more for the female Avenger side and female superhero side because she's not a superpowered superhero. She's just an assassin and she wasn't there. Mm. And that upset me more than anything else about that sequence. There is that problem with it. I mean, I was actually going to bring this up when we were talking about Black Widow earlier is that I think that up until that point, I think the film, in terms of the use of its female characters, wasn't great prior to that point because, of course, Black Widow gets killed off. And not just that, but like up until that point, Black Widow doesn't even have a proper action beat in the entire film up until her death, Mm -hmm. which is odd. You got Black Widow dying, Captain Marvel is sidelined for almost the entirety of the movie. Koya's barely in it. With the exception, like I said, we've said how important Nebula was to this story, but it doesn't do any favors to the rest of its female cast. It really doesn't. I liked that moment, but I do recognize that it does pander a little bit. It panders a little bit, but I liked it as a I liked it as a moment, especially the imagery of it, which looks, um, in terms of the framing, like a lot of the images in the actual final climax, it looks like a big comic book spread. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about here, but sometimes you need to get past the pandering to get to the more organic moments. One thing, though, just ask me a question, and this is now just looking at that scene. What is Mantis going to do? I love Mantis, don't get me wrong. I I adore Mantis. She's so cute and so funny. She's the only person who, like, subdued Thanos. She's charging towards this army. I'm just like, you know... What's she going to do? <laughs> I assume jump on somebody's back and put him to sleep. I thought that when I was seeing it. I was just like, oh, Mantis, what's she going to do? Oh, don't die. Well, we're talking about the women of the MCU. Obviously, Scarlet Witch is brought back when things are unsnapped. And she is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that moment is brilliant. Yeah. Elizabeth Olsen, who uh, also, when she got unsnapped, apparently found her accent again. <laughs> <laughs> i got to say, though, I do love the exchange between her and Thanos when she says, you took everything from me and he goes i don't even know who you are (laughs) (laughs) well actually i was going to go on about that as being a little bit of an issue in the you know the characters getting revenge on a version of Thanos that has no idea who she is i just love the way Thanos says it though it's just like i don't even know who you are i think he said and i don't even know who you are it's like like, here let me put this cigarette out on your hand for an ashtray (laughs) well dan olsen brought this up actually is that when she said that he thought that she was going to implant that memory in his head because that's a thing that scarlet witch can do but Apparently they've forgotten that she can do because they've never done it since Age of Ultron. No, not since Age of Ultron, which is something Josh Whedon would be aware of considering he's a massive comic book nerd. You would think they would actually do that, though, because it would make sense. that's not another ability she has in the comics. Because suddenly this version of Thanos would be sort of on the same playing field, essentially. We're in the middle of an action sequence. We don't have time for a telepathy battle. Yeah, I think that's (laughs) what it comes down to. I I like that they brought it back. and I like that she actually got a moment with Thanos. It's just a shame that's kind of just weird because of the way that the story is moved around basically while they've not been there some of the other characters don't really get as much to do like uh, Drax is barely in the final battle Doctor Strange is waylaid having to stop a burst dam from falling on them <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a case of we're putting everybody in this but we've put everyone in this so yeah. we just don't have time and room for everybody well Doctor Strange that was a case of them trying to again take out another one of the really stronger powered characters so he's obviously just 
on the sidelines just trying to keep things together. What was Wong's line in that? He said, you wanted more people or something? He goes, is this everyone? And Wong goes, you wanted more? Yeah. <laughs> Doctor Strange had his chance to show off, so to speak, in Infinity War. Yes. Yeah. That incredible fight he had with Thanos. And I think the idea is to have other characters like Captain Marvel and other characters, Scarlet Witch, Iron Man, of course, Captain America. The idea is to have those characters show off in this battle. Mm. You kind of have to give Scarlet Witch that moment just for revenge on Vision's death. Yeah. I also like that there's a lot of, like, I would say aliens callback with Hawkeye when he's trapped underground with the gauntlet. Did anyone else, like, get that vibe? A little bit, a little bit. We're running through the claustrophobic, like, uh... But I just had, like, the heavy red lighting. It really, I was like, this is an aliens flashback for me. Uh, I was getting uh, heavy vibes from that. But that entire battle sequence, I mean, that music cue, Al Silvestri's music cue from the moment you hear Falcon say, on your left, another wonderful callback, because if you think back to Winter Soldier, what does Captain America keep saying to Falco? On your left. Lovely callback. When we started this, I said this had the Peter Jackson superhero fights. I mean, it was like they took the fight in Infinity War, doubled the size of both armies. They gave Thanos big monsters. They brought those flying dragons back. The single biggest, most intense superhero battle I think we were ever going to... It's going to be a while before they can top that one. It was beautiful. And again, the Alan Silvestri score from On Your Left to the portals opening up to everybody coming through this swell of the Avengers theme. The Wakanda army. Yep. The close-up on Cap's face, everybody lining up, the music pauses for just a second, Cap shouts, well he doesn't even shout it, he kind of whispers it. No, he shouts the first, he shouts he Avengers. He shouts Avengers, and then he, mum- then he whispers assemble. assemble, and then this burst of the score as everybody charges. Oh, amazing, yeah. what a sequence. And then that score, right from that fight, is just incredible. And again, it works because the action had held back so much up until that point, and it's just a burst of catharsis. Agreed. If you'd had constant action right from the go, that wouldn't have impacted as much as it did. No. It impacted, like you said, because they held back. I was wondering, uh, should we talk about just the insane amounts of money this movie is making? Have you guys been following that? Yes, we probably should. If we represent the box office take as part of the whole, I think Marvel now owns half the money on Earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, smashed domestic. It's earned over a billion and it's only been out for a weekend. This movie on Friday alone, domestically, this is just in the US, the movie made an estimated $156 million on Friday alone, which is more than most movies make in their entire runs. On top of that, it broke the US opening weekend record in its first two days, Mm. meaning it has a whole Sunday to just (laughs) add on top of that record, which is nuts. It is insane. Mm. I think it's cultivated by the fact we're so excited for the sort of Marvel properties at this point because of the way that everything has been gearing towards this moment I think that there is definitely a sense that this movie is an event yes, it's, it's a event. particular mm-hmm. point of time you see this a lot with comic book movies comic book movies from a box office level are notoriously kind of front loaded because the fans will want to go and see this right from you know first showing basically and they want to see it as soon as possible but what you'll probably see is that this not only opens enormously but it'll probably have quite long legs because people will just keep going back to it and again and again and again because it's such a satisfying movie I think. All signs are pointing to that. I mean, it has a 97 Rotten Tomatoes, an A-plus cinema score, which is rare for a big-budget blockbuster. It's only the third Marvel movie to get that on top of Avengers and Black Panther, both of which were mega hits. It has a chance to dethrone Avatar. I think it will. Which no one thought possible Mm. even like a couple months ago. I would not have bet that. Now, that looks like a very real scenario. This is a bit of an unusual film because this was the first kind of time they did a part two movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Everything else was a one-off. 
off. And with then with Infinity War, you built up interest right away because the bad guy wins. So you want to see what happens after that. And then you kept it going with credit scenes in uh, Ant-Man and Wasp and Captain Marvel. Keeps the interest alive. True. We know there's going to be a part two. So how do the heroes come back from this devastating loss? So there was a lot of interest going into this movie instead of it just being like, here's the story we're telling. Come see it. It doesn't really affect anything else. And the marketing of this movie was incredible. Because if you think about it, now we've seen the movie, if you look at the trailers, it does not give away that much. No. Not just very much. They give away nothing, mostly because they barely show any movie footage itself. A lot of the main trailer is footage from previous Marvel entries. Yeah. Are you listening, Dark Phoenix marketing crew? (laughs) And when they do show footage from the movie, it's from the first, what, half hour? If that. Yeah. There's a couple of shots from later in the movie, but predominantly, The big scenes are all of them in those uniforms marching. I thought, okay, the movie's going to be they go into space, and at the end they fight Thanos and get everyone back, or undo it. It'll be clean slate reboot. No! They fight Thanos (laughs) in the first 15 minutes. Everything else is, what do we do now? Yeah. What has also coincided with the release of this movie is an extraordinary amount of spoiler phobia. Because you get to the point where, okay, the Marvel advertising team are consciously aware. They're always trying to play people along and try to waylay you along the course of it. But because there was so little released about this movie, it builds suspense about it because it allows people to speculate. I mean, there's a whole community of people on YouTube that just purely exist to speculate over what might be happening in the MCU, what may be happening in the MCU. It kind of gets to a point where it starts building upon itself, and then the spoiler aversion becomes part of the film's own marketing campaign, you know, don't spoil the endgame, hashtag. There was a story that happened in Hong Kong where a man who was outside one of the popular theaters in that city was just shouting out spoilers, and so he was beaten up by a crowd to a pulp and sent to the hospital. I have a very popular Facebook fan page. I've got about a couple thousand people on it. I put down rules sometimes when like the Star Wars films come out or when this one came out. I said, look, no spoilers on this page until the Monday after the second opening weekend. Mm. Let's give everyone time to see it. You know, I try, but you know, any spoilers are going to get deleted. With how just how packed this movie is, there is like a scenario where you can't really get tickets in the good theaters for a few days. I booked my tickets for my View Cinema. There were two seats available. Wow. Yeah. We saw it on Thursday and I booked them on Monday. When I got there, because I got the cinema and I didn't have to queue for my tickets I went to a machine and there was a huge row of people and this lady who worked for The View stood in front of the line and she said guys just to let you know the 6 o'clock showing is sold out the quarter past 6 showing is sold out the half past 6 showing is sold out my showing which was the 5 to 7 showing has sold out so while I was there it was continuously selling out it's the insanity of people trying to see these films and just get in there every screening has been sold out it's because people want to be part of an event but also because of the fact that you know it's so secretive everyone wants to be the first it's sort of cultivating and capitalizing on i think something that has been in the sort of comic book movie community and in the large movie community for a very long time i think especially with event films and i can understand it from the logic of event films because with event films they're deliberately built as surprises a lot of the construction of this film is built around the big reveal moments the big unexpected Mm -hmm. moments Mm -hmm. of oh this is where thor is right now this is where hulk is right now even on smaller beats so i can understand why people have been so cautious about reviewing it, about mentioning it, even people that are even talking about it, even in the vaguest of terms, are getting shouted down by people. It's kind of reached a fever pitch. This is a little mean. I used to work at the Borders Bookstore, which is a now defunct book chain in the United States. And I was there for two of the Harry Potter releases, mm. books three and four. And we would do those midnight releases. And we'd have the people lined up waiting to buy the books. And I would just walk by them. And I was like, wow, who would have thought that Voldemort was Luke Skywalker's father? <laughs> and they go, hey! And- oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It's nice that 
people are preserving the surprise. It feels kind of old-fashioned in that way, and with the internet as it is, where you can disseminate things almost instantly, it's nice that people are preserving those secrets for people to enjoy with the film, for audiences to be on the same page as each other. Yep. That's how most people prefer to watch things. There are some people that prefer to know everything about a film and then go and see it. That's what Wikipedia's for. Yeah, exactly. But I think it gets to a point, though, where you can't actually discuss the films. That starts to become a problem, where you can't actually talk about them in any kind of real detail, even on a passing glance. That's where it starts to become an issue. I think this is an exception, because you think about, like again, the like first 20 minutes, how because we didn't know what was happening, that they kill Thanos off instantly, that really is a curveball. That yeah. puts you in a state of... Un- I've never felt like that in a theatre, of not knowing what to expect next by the first 20 minutes. That was the real difference between this and Infinity War for me, is that Infinity War, I knew everywhere it was going to go, and then right from the outset, I was like, I don't know where this is going. This is refreshing. Infinity War is a very conventional superhero story, but Endgame, it keeps throwing you curves. This is Marvel actually straying away from the established formula. Because mm-hmm. he does get rid of half the universe in the comic books, but there's no time heist. They just take the gauntlet back and bring everyone back, you know? Mm. And this is far more exciting, and again, like, it's about that history. It's about going back in time. It's seeing where they've been, where they've gone, who they used to be, and who they've become. It's... I got a question for you, though. This is more to Brian, because they just mentioned about the comics. Yeah. When Nebula got the gauntlet, did you think they might go that way? And have that bit from the comic where Nebula got the gauntlet? Did you think that would happen? You know, it's been like 20 years since I read the Infinity Gauntlet, so I'd actually forgotten about that. When that happened, and... So when she got the gauntlet, no, I did not think that, I but... thought for a second, are they going to go that way? Are they going to actually have her become the master of the gauntlet? And then they didn't, and I'm glad. It wouldn't have fit with what the character was doing. I wonder if that was like a little, like a well, moment to you. that was the evil Nebula, yeah. so yeah. I really like that moment when evil Nebula just took the gauntlet from Hawkeye. Oh yeah, you have it. Like, the whole audience <laughs> in my theater, they're like, no! I really loved it. I loved that moment, and I'm sure that's a little nod for the comic book fans as well, just like, you know, hey, look, she could go that way. <laughs> so while we're talking about how gigantic this movie is, and it's made a squillion dollars, and everyone has seen it already. And if you haven't, why the hell are you listening to this podcast? Yeah. The question now is, where do things go from here? And I'm not just talking about in the MCU, I'm talking about in the superhero genre in general. I said on Twitter shortly after I saw it, that pretty much everyone who is making a movie that comes out after this one, especially immediately after, must be sort of catching their breath going, how the heck do we follow that? <laughs> yeah, don't worry, Maddie. DC have got Joker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But just for the summer, it's like, how do you top this? Yeah. I think you have to go exactly the opposite direction. You have to tell smaller, more personal stories, like Shazam did. That's about a family. You gotta scale back. You can't you gotta do... scale back. Go back to you the You can't beginning. do epics for a while. You gotta let that palette be cleansed. Smaller, more personal stories, which DC does very well, which Marvel Netflix has done very well, but they've not done very well in the movies, with the possible exception of the first Ant-Man. The next Marvel movie is, of course, Spider-Man Far From Home, which looks like it's gonna be a smaller story. Well, obviously it's gonna be a smaller story. But then you've got Spider-Man fighting giant water and sand monsters in Europe, so... Yeah. Mm. There's that sense of the big scale again. Mm. While I was watching this film, and yeah, it does have sort of gestures to the universe continuing, there are things that are going to continue on from this point, but it does feel very much like the end of an era. Yes, it ends Tony's Mm. story, it ends Cap's story. Black Widow's gone, Vision's gone. It ends Black Widow's story, it ends uh, Hawkeye's story, really. I mean, yeah, he's gone home. But it it also, if you think of it away, it metaphorically ends the Avengers, because Thanos destroys the Avengers HQ. Yeah, he does. It effectively, in terms of a metaphor, the Avengers now can start completely again. It's like what comes out of the dust, what sort of 
sort of reemerges from the ruins of the old Avengers, and you can have the new Avengers. Mm-hmm. You can have a new Captain America. And I know we've got the TV series with uh, Bucky and Falco. Maybe that TV series will be about him becoming Captain America. You just don't know. Or maybe he'll be the lead in the next Avengers film, which would be really exciting. Yep, a black lead in a superhero movie. Currently uh, in Avengers, uh, Black Panther is leading them. And that would be great too. Yeah. The Avengers does not have to be led by Captain America. Nope. It can be led by any member. That, that's very true. Yeah. And I feel like going forward, it's just even looking at the box office, the two members that will probably lead the team are T'Challa and Carol Danvers, most likely. Yeah, I think what will happen there is that they'll now sort of, like you said, go back to very small, intimate stories, establishing new leaders. Okay. You had the three main characters of Avengers was Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. Are you going to institute a new trio of three characters now for the new Avengers, maybe? Yeah. We touched upon the Disney shows that are coming. Uh, The Loki series, is this a prequel or does this follow alternate universe Loki? I think it's alternate universe Loki with the Tesseract and everything. I think that'd be a fun series. Yeah. Maybe going through time and interfering with time? I don't know. So the next big threat comes, a new team of Avengers has to be formed. Who's the villain? Galactus? Do you do what they did too and build up the villain? I think you do that. You could start putting hints of a new villain. I'd yeah. like to see, after all this time travel stuff, let's bring in Kang. Now is that like the overall villain you want? Yeah. Or is like one for the Avengers to face? Straight away. We build up to him being the next Avengers villain. I've got it. Kang well, the Conqueror. Okay. After all this time travel stuff, he starts manipulating time in little bits and pieces here and then he finally makes his move and rewrites all of history as being under his domain so the new Avengers have to form to stop Kang. Who would you like to see if you in, in an ideal situation you write the next Avengers movie who's the next villain? Honestly, Death. Because it's a female main villain and you're definitely going Wasn't with... Hela supposed to be... Well, Hela is the Norse goddess of death but there is a physical personification of death as a cosmic entity in the Marvel Universe. I thought they were the same... That's so Thanos was in love with. And in the current Guardians of the Galaxy book, Hela is trying to resurrect Thanos. Okay. So it kind of goes both ways. But my thinking of um, the way that superhero movies are going is that we've kind of reached a sort of apex at this point. What I wonder is how much audiences will keep going after this point. I don't think there is any conceivable way you can top this, at least not for a very long time. I don't think you can top it, but it's one of those things where as long as the movies are good, the audience will keep showing yeah. up. I think just that's it. I think all genres have a sort of natural ebb and flow to them, because the superhero genre has been the dominant one for so long. Two decades, basically. There is a part of me wondering, okay, at what point does that change? And it did feel to me when I was watching this, like that might be that moment where, because it feels like so wrapped up at this point, like a book is closed. Yeah, but nobody at Disney is going to say, I'm tired of making money with superhero movies. (laughs) Especially when they see these returns. (laughs) They're going to have to go a little further and stop making money before they decide it's time to give them a rest. I'm not saying that the superhero movie is going to stop necessarily, like instantly. Just being dominant. But maybe uh, recede a little bit after this, I think, maybe. Well, we're going to have to wait and see on that one. I'm not being negative about the superhero genre in general about that. I'm just... I didn't come here to assassinate the superhero genre. (laughs) Phil Brain, damn it. It will be interesting to see how they approach this, though, because if you look at it from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they never said, we're going to make 22 movies that'll, you know, lead to this. It was, we made Iron Man, and it was a success. We'll put in a hint here that maybe we'll do the Avengers. Yeah, they threw in that hint at the end. Incredible Hulk brought Robert Downey Jr. in to film that bit. Then it was decided, okay, we'll work towards the Avengers. That was it. There was no plan after that. I think Matty even mentioned it as well when you were talking about Phase 2 with Iron Man 3 and everything. It felt a little bit disjointed. Mm. It's a bit of a rocky start to Phase 2. It was only when Captain America Winter Soldier came along that changed everything. Changed the way you could sort of look at these Marvel Cinematic Films. It was basically a spy thriller. It was quite adult for what it was doing. It changed the entire foundation of the series by making 
attacking S.H.I.E.L.D. Hydra. There's something happening now. And then Marvel obviously announced yeah. Phase 3 for Civil War, Infinity War. We've got a plan now. We know where we're going. So I wonder, would they do the same thing? Would they do a Phase 4 with a quick plan of like, let's get to a new Avengers? Is that the plan? And then maybe, like you were saying then, Brian, put in a hint of a bigger villain. Maybe Phase 4, let's start working into the Fantastic Four. Let's work in the X-Men. Let's do the yeah. big Marvel Universe movie instead of just the Avengers movie. You've got all that with the possibility and you know it's coming mm-hmm. because Disney own them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the depressing part. Disney owns nearly everything. <laughs> and they've just made everything. It's the mouse's world. We just live in it. Yeah. Obviously now it is happening. They're going to be doing X-Men. Would you like them to keep McAvoy, Fastbender? No, it's time for a new cast. Yeah. They, they need to cleanse it. I mean, there was a point when they should have wrapped that X-Men series up and it was called Logan. <laughs> they refused to. They need fresh blood. They need a new take. Not only need a new take, but they need one that doesn't have the association of, say, Brian Singer or Brett yeah. Ratner on it. So do you think they'll keep Brian Reynolds as Deadpool? They'll probably keep that. I think they said the Deadpool is separate from everything else, so yes. I mean, with Deadpool 3, you can have so much fun with Deadpool trying to be a part of the Marvel st- Cinematic Universe, <laughs> and he can't, and that's the running joke. Everyone has said now that Stan's gone, we need to have uh, Deadpool in like a Stan Lee wig come on for the cameos. <laughs> exactly, that'd be great. I think the other thing that um mentioned about going forward, I guess it's the problem that it's inherent to the medium of comic books, but death is never totally final. There is always some way around it. Only Uncle Ben. Yeah. Especially when you introduce time travel into a story, it always introduces a little couple of things. Even though there are definitely sort of things that, where I go, okay, I don't think they're going to come back. There's always that sort of crack in the door there somewhere. For example, Chris Evans, there's still that kind of crack in the door there. If, you know, he might pop up in a little guest role at some point. A cameo. Yeah. Like, Old Man Cap, or if they do like a prequel, yeah. one of the characters might be walking down the street and bump into him with Peggy, you know, just like a, a little sort of like wink and a nod type thing. In a period piece or something like that, yeah. I mean, you could theoretically do that with um Tony Stark. Captain America's jumping through time right now. You can yeah. bump into him anyway. Yeah. Exactly. That seems like a really open door on that front, but yeah. um, it seems less so in, say, the direction of Robert Downey Jr., and that seems understandable. I think that he's kind of got out of the right time now. I think that yeah. Downey Jr., we knew that he was going to exit at this point. He was starting to age out of the role, I think, you know. He was at that point now, so I don't think we'll see him again. It's like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow says to him, you can finally rest. It's just like, yes, (laughs) you can finally rest. (laughs) That's a nice moment, actually, because, you know, this this version of Tony is full of PTSD. He's always constantly worrying about threats, and he dies at the moment that there is none anymore. And that's fitting. He ends the threat. I always said that I always figured, because I got a friend, I met my friend Chris. He was convinced that Captain Marvel would kill Thanos. And I said, I think Tony will, because it's Tony's story. Ultimately, this started with him. Mm. He's obsessed with Thanos from Avengers onwards. Tony kind of has to kill Thanos or die trying. And in a way, he did both. Both, yeah. In in this film, if you had had Captain Marvel be absent for the entire middle of the film, and then she just shows up at the end and kills Thanos, that would have been something. Yeah. Oh, man, can you imagine all the people on the internet go, Rage, rage, rage. All the screeching would never end. (laughs) If you think about it, Tony Stark in this movie kind of mirrors the first Iron Man because he comes back from some horrible place having almost died. Yep. Mm. Oh yeah, the parallels are made obvious. Seems like he's always getting captured or trapped in places and almost dying and then coming back to save the day. Everything comes full circle. And also parallels of the first Avengers where he does the big sacrifice plan. They do a fake out at the end of that film of like, did he die or not? Layers upon layers upon layers. Everything has a callback of some sort. There's not a single stone unturned. (laughs) It's just riddled with callbacks and character layering 
and it's such an amazingly put together film. I, mean, I can't wait to see it again. I didn't tear up, but I certainly choked up. The deal was with Sarah, she'd come and see this film with me if I go and see Detective Pikachu with her. <laughs> I'm going to follow through on that deal, but I said to her after we left the cinema, there's no point going to the cinema anymore. Cinema is over. Nothing can top this. <laughs> and she said, you're still coming to see Detective Pikachu with me. And I was like, oh, great, fine. <laughs> this is more movie than movie. <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the great things about it. Is it does feel like a true cinematic moment. I came to the realization this weekend that there were some of us living in a pre-Endgame world and some of us living in a post-Endgame world. Yeah. yeah. They will never know. Guys, it's been nearly two hours. We've done quite well. Yeah, we have done quite well, but it still feels like we haven't covered everything somehow. No. i got to get up in six hours because I'm watching Game of Thrones. i got to get up at five <laughs> o'clock in the morning because Game of Thrones is on. I'm very proud of myself. I got through two hours without calling Welshy a ginger. Hey, well done! <laughs> right at the very end. <laughs> I've been so preoccupied with Endgame this weekend. It's like, oh yeah, this massive Game of Thrones episode is about to happen. No, I've already seen so many favourite characters die and I'm about to watch another 20 20 of them die tonight. Oh, crazy. Exactly. It's too much. <laughs> It's kind of remarkable, the pop cultural landscape, just as a final note right now, you've got the sort of wrap-up of the MCU here, you've got the wrap-up of the long-running Game of Thrones franchise going on simultaneously. This is a year where we're also getting the culmination of the current Star Wars trilogy. It's an insane pop cultural moment. All happening at the end of the decade, and these are things, especially Game of Thrones and the Marvel Studios, that started at the beginning of the yep. decade, or at least yeah. found their footing at the beginning of the decade. So it's this weird, like stars aligning thing of like I really I'm very curious to see what takes hold and becomes popular in the 2020s uh, it'd be interesting to predict that I'm guessing cat videos yes <laughs> maybe it's Pokemon movies maybe it's Pokemon movies oh god you know what I can genuinely see that happening yeah. same now the apocalypse happens and all cinema screens start showing cat videos <laughs> so I think on that note on the revelation of just an extraordinary time that we are living in on a pop culture landscape. Jonathan, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on YouTube at Films and Stuff. If you liked this discussion on Marvel, there's a lot more of it on the channel. I've been doing the Marvel Studios retrospective, going over a lot of their movies. You can find me on Twitter at JBURD22. Brian, where can people find you? Well, you can just search YouTube for Last Angry Geek. I have a couple shows. I have Comic Book Issues, which I review comics. I have You Know Who, which I review Doctor Who. And I have Geek Riffs, where I riffled shorts a la Mystery Science Theater. You can also find me on Twitter at at in geek we trust. And Welshy, where are you at these days? I'm sure many people won't know the answer to this question. Well, I don't do the internet. Anymore. I retired. I did what Robert Downey Jr. did. I went out on top, which is incredibly arrogant of me to say. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still on Twitter, Welshy underscore who. But as far as like a, an online presence goes, I'm very minimal. I sort of enjoyed my time doing what I did. I made a lot of friends who I still consider friends. I mean, I'm talking to them now. And uh, I've been getting married in two years, so I'm very busy. <laughs> You and your having a life. You and your impulsive relationships getting married in two years. If you've enjoyed this podcast, as usual, be sure to like, share, and subscribe to it on all the various platforms. It's on all your favourite platforms, be it iTunes, Stitcher, and so on and so forth. Go and seek it out wherever you can. And if you want to follow me elsewhere, I am on Twitter at FB underscore BMB, on YouTube at FilmBrain, FilmBrain Reviews on Facebook, and FilmBrain BMB on Tumblr you cannot escape me I'm like Thanos <laughs> and like that we shall snap out of this podcast take care everyone
Symbolism. Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain where you can experience those episodes early, among other perks. And just a quick shout out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, SoFox, Inigo Almandos, Tim Tark, G Viral, Robert Murray, Henry Jacob, Manuel Jonan, Marley Berrickmans, Joshua Bowden, I Have Fury, and remember if you have any feedback about the show over social media, please use the hashtag FilmBrainPodcast.